Well, here comes the sun. Part one in our super astronomy hour this week. Here comes the sun, and as George Harrison said, it's all right. Here comes the sun. Here comes the sun. I say it's all right. The sun we see in the sky has provided us with pretty much everything. Than deep sea vents, I suppose, and geothermal stuff. But goodness me, we take it for granted. It is our closest star, and it hasn't always been like it is now. And this has to be taken into account if you're a paleontologist and things like that. The star wasn't the same brightness back then as it was now. This may come as some news. So, the history of our sun. We need to find somebody who knows a thing or two about this. It's a star. So somebody who studies the life of stars from their birth to death or however they end up is JJ Eldridge, astrophysicist from Auckland University. I'm so glad I found you, JJ. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Graham, for asking me. When did the sun start emitting light? And what would that have been? Would it be ha- happened at 4.30 on a Tuesday or something like that? It's kind of suddenly as the solar system, the dust and gases condensed. We're familiar with that, but how would it turn on? What would happen? Well, we know from trying to model the sun, like from studying its interior today, that it must be at least about 4.5 to 4.8 billion years old. So that's how long it's been nuclear burning. It's a bit like turning hydrogen to helium in its core. Yeah. But as you said rightly, it comes from a gas cloud. I and mean, how long did it take for this gas cloud that would have been light years across to condense down into a, a star? And that probably takes about 30 million years or so. And it's really complicated because we can see other sun-like stars doing this today. Mm-hmm. But we know our sun must be very unusual in some ways. And it's, there's, there's all these things where you can sort of wave your arms and say we broadly know the picture, but it's like the exact details is very difficult. So it takes about, from the gas cloud, it would have taken about a few million years to condense down, and then eventually the nuclear reactions would start in the core, and it kind of slows down quite a lot. And then it would continue burning its fuel, and as it burns that hydrogen to helium, then it slowly gets bigger. It's getting bigger today at a rate of about an inch a year or so. What, 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 the sun is getting bigger and bigger? It is, but very slowly. Unfortunately, it is about an inch a year when you work it out. Mm. And so actually, when it was born when it first started producing light or energy by nuclear fusion, it would have been about 90% of its current radius. It would have been about 5% cooler, and its luminosity would have been about two-thirds of its current brightness. So actually on the Earth, where we're sitting now, would have been a little bit cooler than it would be today. Okay. When it turns on, does it just happen all at once? I suppose it has to. It's either on or off, isn't it? Um, I remember watching some TV series and they talk about the life cycle of stars, and Whenever they say that the radio goes like, and suddenly the nuclear fusion reaction starts and you see this massive shock go boom through the surface, it doesn't happen like that, unfortunately. Because when it's this gas cloud, it gets quite cold and it gets a little bit denser and contracts. That heats it up. It's like it's the thing where you have a bicycle pump and you're trying to compress the air and it heats up. But then as you heat something up, of course, then it starts to shine, which cools it down so it can condense more. So uh, actually, when you've had this gas cloud, it's a gentle process, and actually it gets hotter. And even before it gets onto what we term the main sequence, where it's burning hydrogen to helium, it's still getting quite bright and quite hot. Um, and then, so it actually doesn't suddenly start. All that happens is it slows down, because as I said, it took millions of years to get down to where the beginning of the fusion reactions happen, and then it suddenly stops, it slows down. So it evolves over billions of years rather than over millions of years, because it's uh, a different time scale, because there's a different, and there's a new energy source. If you look back in history, when we were working out the first models of the sun and trying to work out how old the Earth was, 
people were confused because we worked out for the sun it should only last 20 million years if it was just shining because it was collapsing under its own weight and it's being powered by gravity in effect as it gets smaller and smaller. But then when we started looking at fossils and radioactive dating of the Earth, we knew it was 4.5 billion years old. So that's where um, Sir Arthur Eddington first suggested, oh, it could be nuclear fusion. Right. And it could be you're getting this extra energy source. Yeah. And then that explains why it's billions of years old, not millions of years old. Right, 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 yeah. And look, it was fair enough to think it might have been a coal fire. We didn't understand uh, yeah. how nuclear <laughs> stuff worked. Okay, so if when the, let's say the sun's it kind of lurches on and off a bit, when it starts going and is not going to stop with its nuclear fusion, is it a ball? Well, when it first yeah. formed, um, it's pretty spherical right now, but it is slightly oblique. I can't remember exactly, but I think it's the equator is a few fractions of a percent thicker than the poles because it's rotating so like the equator bulges a little bit right but when it was first born you're right it would have had a disc around it which is actually where we're coming from uh, so even though the center of that gas cloud collapses towards the star and the sun there would be a disc around it as well because the material can't just it's like if you've got your arms stretched wide and you spin and you bring your arms up like an ice skater and you spin up the same thing would have happened to the sun which is why you get this disc it's very difficult to make things spin in anything else than a disc right. and so there would also be this connection between the disc and the sun and the sun would have continued growing a little bit but again we don't know exactly how much more because it's really difficult and model dependent and we haven't got a time machine to go back and check so it would have been mostly spherical but it would have been rotating much faster right. it would have been rotating close to breakup so it would be a lot more like a smarter and m&m where it's a bit it's more oblate but then okay. over time, as it slowed down, it became more spherical. Okay. You said it starts off smaller and then gets bigger. What makes it bigger? <laughs> so that's, that's an interesting question. I've, I've said before some random comments at conferences, and people suddenly go, like, what? We do understand why the sun gets bigger. Because and there's a change going on at the centre. So at the centre, as you're burning hydrogen to helium, there's a difference between hydrogen and helium. In the, um, there's a different, what we term a mean molecular weight, so how heavy each particle is. Because for helium, each particle has got four nuclons. Like it's got two protons, two neutrons, whereas hydrogen's just got one. Mm. And so you're actually compactifying the core, you can think of. You can squeeze more into a smaller space because you've got fewer particles. You've got roughly a quarter of the particles. So the sun is actually at the core getting more dense and just squeezing more in. And for some reason, when you try and solve the equations, there's no simple reason why I can explain it. I can tell you, though, that when you try and study the sun and you put in how gases work and all the other physics, that actually drives the sun to get bigger. It's almost trying to, like, average out its mean density. As the center gets denser, the entire star has to slightly expand. And eventually, that, of course, when you've got this entire helium core and all the hydrogen in the center has burned to helium, the star becomes a red giant, which... We know happens because we can see red giants like Betelgeuse and Antares and other stars that are quite recognisable in the sky. But we can't give you a simple reason. We just know they do, and they do in our computer programs. Because it's really complicated. Non it's like we can more or less model the weather, but we can't really explain it day to day how it works because it's just a complex problem. Okay. We'll take your word for it. The other end of the equal sign, it says getting bigger. Okay. When it turned on, how would that have changed the environment of the, our solar system disk? Would it be, have been like a leaf blower cleaning stuff away with a solar wind? It's a good question. Again, I mean, it's always like we can't see the sun as it was back then, but we can look at other stars. And we see that they can be pretty mucky environments because we see lots of stars, but we can't see the central star because there's a disk around it. Mm. And we can see there's lots of things being blown out, but most of the material being blown out is along the poles. And the disks are actually quite stable. 
And so it would start to shine. There's also a lot of discussion about the X-ray luminosity from, say, coronal mass ejections, another like solar wind type material. Mm. But it wouldn't suddenly have started. It would have been going on all the time. I was trying to think about this quite hard. And it's the only thing that you would notice is if you had a handy neutrino detector, you would suddenly start detecting neutrinos because you would suddenly have nuclear fusion going on in the core, which produces these particles. And there's hundreds of millions going through your fingernails right now, but they don't do anything. So that's that, that's the good news. Mm. But that's the only thing we detect. Otherwise, it would be almost like business as normal, but things would kind of settle down and they wouldn't change so much. So um, you'd probably drive out the disk, but that was already happening, really. All right. Neutrino is uh, the subatomic particle of the year. Just a bit of a discovery this week about the neutrino thing. Yeah. Are you on yeah. top of that? Yeah, me and, me and a friend in the UK were uh, betting um, what it was because um, <laughs> so, so stars produce neutrinos because, I mean, as you know, I said the sun does, and we know that uh, in 1987 we detected some from an exploding star in a nearby galaxy. And there's another really exciting star exploding at the moment called 2018 COW. And everyone's really excited about it because it's nothing we've seen. And we were going like, I bet they detected neutrinos from it. Right. Uh, it wasn't that, though. These other neutrinos have detected um, an ice cube, which is down at Antarctica, uh, coming from a accreting black hole at the center of a galaxy many billions of light years away, which is kind of exciting because we haven't detected neutrinos from something like that before. And so it's like, what's going on? And how do you create those neutrinos? And they're very high energy ones. But that's probably the most distant neutrino we've ever detected, which is going to tell us new things. Yeah. But not about the sun. Yeah. And they're kind of hard to catch. You need a thinner net than white bait. <laughs> There's no way our sun ever had a partner because binary is pretty much the norm, isn't it? So at least it's more common than the solo affair. Yeah, yeah. Binary stars are the big thing that I kind of do every day in terms of trying to understand stars because everywhere you look, I mean, single stars are quite nice, easy to model because they're just on their own. Mm. The second you have another companion next to them, <laughs> anything can happen, which can be confusing. So if you look at the night sky, about 50% of stars have got a binary companion, 25% are single like our sun, and the other quarter are in triples or quadruples or quintuples or septuples all the way up. Stellar families, I suppose you could call them together. Right. For very massive stars, things above 10 times the mass of the sun, all of those stars are basically in binaries. When you get to our sun, though, only about 40% of the stars are in binaries, which is good for us because if the sun did have a binary companion at some time in its history, we wouldn't be here. I mean, we have begun to find planets around binary stars, but they're in very different orbits. And so, yes, you can have Tatooine like in Star Wars. That's a perfectly reasonable planetary system that you could have. But because our solar system is so unique as well, I can have this conversation now, but 20 years ago, we didn't know about what other planets around other stars were like. And the fact that we've got such a large solar system with all the planets spread out over such a large volume of the solar system, we couldn't have had another binary companion. So fortunately, no, the sun has always been alone. Having said that, it would have been born in a star cluster. Yeah. And so somewhere in the galaxy, there are other stars that are born in the same gas cloud at the same time as our sun, but they've just been dispersed over the Milky Way. Because if we were still in a star cluster again, we probably wouldn't have these planets. Right. But, you know, the, the sun has now been moving away from them. And yeah, we, we do find some stars that are probably in, from the same gas cloud as the sun, but it's difficult to find those. Aunties and uncles. That's amazing. Yes. Yeah. 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 Or maybe siblings is probably because they're all about it's, the same uh, age. Right, right. Well, I'm, I'm looking at it from the point of view that Earth is a child of the sun. Oh, yes, yeah. So I suppose very difficult for a planet to hang around in, in a handy Goldilocks place if you've got a binary system. It's, it's hard to hang around with that level of domestic violence happening. 
Yeah, yeah. Mm. Although people are looking at that, people are trying to work out what is the habitability of binary systems. It's a really interesting problem because there's so many factors. All right. So, yeah. Over the last four billion years, how has it changed? Somebody told me it's getting brighter and hotter. I don't want this to be mm. grist to the mill of climate change deniers, but that is a fact. The sun has gradually, very, very gradually, mm. gotten hotter, right? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's only going to maybe double its brightness over its lifetime, maybe. And it's already got 50% brighter than it was when it was first started nuclear reactions. Mm. So it's not going to get too much brighter, but it will get bright enough that in about, I think, I have to check these numbers to be exact, but two to 300 million years, the sun will be bright enough that it will be too hot on the Earth to actually be habitable. No, so what? what, what? To move to Mars. I thought the end was certain at about 4 billion. So it's only 300 million. Yeah, because it's just because then the habitable zone gets to, the sun gets too hot, so there's too much energy coming on the Earth, and unless we move the Earth away from the sun, or you try and engineer the sun so it stays the same luminosity, yeah, we see 300 million years is all we've got, rather than the four billion. Because you're right, I mean, it's got enough fuel to last an extra four and a half billion years or so, but yeah, we we haven't got long, unfortunately. Sorry to spoil the party, everybody. Okay, and it would have been cooler in the past. How much cooler? How would it have affected life on Earth or its development? So the temperature is what tells us the colour. And that hasn't changed much. That's only changed by like 5% or so. But it's the luminosity that's the thing because that's how much energy is outputting onto the surface of the planet. So if you think, if we go up into the surface of the atmosphere, I think it's about every square metre has about one kilowatt of energy hitting it. And when you take that down to the surface of the planet, it's about 300 watts from the sun per meter squared on the surface of the Earth. So back when it was born, that would have been about 200 watts on the surface and about six or 700 watts at the top of the atmosphere. In the future, of course, that's going to maybe double up to like two kilowatts. And that's because it's getting hotter, then you would get more energy. So what happened in the past, that would have definitely affected the climate, but billions of years ago, and it's changing over such a small time scale. I mean, it, it can't affect it today. Yeah, but if a paleontologist is looking at the leaf of a plant and how it works photosynthetically, one would have to take that into account. It may answer a few questions if you factor Mm. that in. Yeah, because the temperature hasn't changed, the colour hasn't changed because the sun still peaks in the green of the spectrum. I mean, it's not green when we look at it because there's so much red and blue light and all the other colours that means we look at the sun we see it's white. But the fact that trees are green and the leaves have always been green tells you that the temperature of the sun hasn't changed. It's changed a tiny little bit, but not enough to actually mean it would have had an effect on how the chemical reaction of photosynthesis changes. It just would have changed the amount of energy each leaf got. So maybe leaves can actually be smaller now because there's more energy yeah. hitting each leaf rather than in the past. Right. So that's um, an interesting question. That. Do we have to look at a physics lecture blackboard for you to explain why it got hotter, gets, is getting hotter? Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. no, well, I, 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 again, it's to do with, like, in the centre of the star. So it's actually getting brighter yeah. because as the sun ages, it gets brighter faster than it gets bigger in terms of radius. Okay. I mean, if you have a surface area of a metre squared and you heat something up, the hotter it becomes, the more light it outputs. If you dump more energy onto the surface of the sun, you can either get hotter or it can get bigger. And so it gets hotter faster than trying to actually get bigger. So actually as the sun grows, it sort of like cools a little bit, but because it's still getting more luminous at the same time, it also balances out, so it is getting hotter. Mm. I'm surprised to find out that we are effectively in the last period for life on Earth, 300 million years, because it goes back billions. I know most of that's been planet bacteria, but who cares? Only 300 million years and we're going to be fried. 
Yeah, okay, but then we can move to Mars. It'll be okay. And oh, then all right. Yeah. We can move to Jupiter. And, you well, know, I'm worried about the octopuses are probably going to take over. <laughs> okay, this 11-year cycle thing, how long has that been operating? It's 11-year cycle of uh, high-activity magnetic bleh, and yeah. then and then it gets quieter. Do we know? Um, I was really thinking hard how to answer this question, and I'm not sure. I mean, the best we can do, again, is actually look at solar-type stars. I mean, we don't know why there is an 11-year cycle. The right. sun is complicated. The outer surface is complicated. And it's all to do with magnetic fields and motions, and it's linked into the rotation because we know that if we look at the rotation of stars like our sun, those that are rotating faster are much more active. Trying to understand how the sun fits into other stars tends to be complicated. I was in Pasadena last year at Carnegie Observatories, and I was talking to someone about, because he studies solar-like stars, and the sun doesn't fit into the nice picture of the other stars. The other stars tend to see trends, and we're going like, the sun's a special case. It's off somewhere funny. Really? But is that because we... Well, it may just be because we don't have a good sample or we don't understand the star. It's just at that point where it's just the activity is just starting to slow down and for it to become less. It's unusual to have something unusual. Exactly. And there's so many things we don't understand about the sun still. So... Yeah, but the 11-year cycle itself is, it doesn't really matter in the big scheme of things. I mean, no. it's nice because you can count more sunspots, but it doesn't change so much on the Earth. We can probably measure something in the sediment layer, so maybe if we went back in time, you can look at see maybe how things have changed. You could look at things like tree rings, but I think the 11-year cycle has been there for a very long time. Okay. Probably not all the way to the birth of the sun. All right. Oh, well, this has been fascinating. I mean, from here to the end of the sun has been more of a familiar scenario, but I don't know, in a, in a potted way in a minute or two, it's going to, what, it's going to get huge and big, it burns up its fuel, it gets bloated and sick, swallow up Mercury and Venus, maybe the Earth as well. Mm. What yep. from there? What happens? What's its end state? Well, eventually, because it's got this helium core in the centre, that'll get dense enough that it can start doing the next nuclear fusion which is turning helium into carbon and oxygen and so it has another like second life when it gets a little bit hotter again and a little bit brighter because it's got an extra energy source but eventually it uses up all the helium and so you get a carbon oxygen core and you have these two burning shells of hydrogen and helium together which do some really fascinating physics which we don't have time for but a lot of the elements um, are produced all, everything heavier than lead and iron are basically produced um, in that phase of evolution then it becomes a white dwarf. It loses all that energy off the surface and it becomes a tiny little hot star and so you'll have something about the mass of the sun and the size of the Earth. And then slowly over billions and millions and trillions of years, it'll cool down and it'll just slowly get cooler and cooler and cooler and nothing else interesting will pretty much happen. What's a white dwarf made of? This one will just be made of carbon and oxygen. They're interesting and they're different because there's no energy being produced in the centre, there's no nuclear fusion, and so they're supported by what we term electron degeneracy pressure, which is where you can't put two things in the same space. So they're just held up by the fact you've got two electrons together and you can't squeeze them together. Electrons are very small things, which is why they have to be so dense to be held up by this, because most stars like our sun are being held up because they're producing energy at the centre, and white dwarfs don't have that. Far out. What makes a white dwarf shrine, then? It's just because it's hot, because it... It's still got the trapped heat from when it was burning helium to carbon and oxygen, so it would have been around about a few hundred million degrees Celsius at the centre when it was doing that. And because it was so small, it takes a long time for the energy to get out because there's ah, not much surface area. It's not producing they, light. It's, it's not doing a nuclear reaction there. It's just your, uh, it, a white hot bit of metal. Yeah, exactly. And so they cool down, and you can tell how long 
ago it was formed from how what the temperature was because it starts off at something a few hundred million degrees and then it slowly cools off which is how we can do it and actually white dwarfs are amazingly simple and they're one of the few types of stars you can probably actually calculate the structure on a bit of paper with a calculator because they're nice and simple and nothing complex is happening in them any stellar people listening to that are going like jj you're wrong <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my word, you physicists are clever. And thank you for being there. You're more than welcome. I'm going to go to the newsroom now and say we've got gloomy news. It's only 300 million years left. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to have to change the headline from 4 billion. Appreciate it. JJ Aldridge, astrophysicist, Auckland University. Good for you. No no problem. You're welcome. Thank you, Graham. The Weekend Variety Wireless. Astronomy Today with Dr. Grant Christie. A dull astronomy treat uh, for this week. Um, The life of the sun. I had no idea, well, I had some idea that it was kind of dynamic, but it's changed a lot over the history. Think It's our sun, Grant, and um, it turns on and there you go and it's going to blow up, but it's more than that. Yeah, well, it's fortunately over most of the time it's, it has been relatively stable but uh you know it's it's in its middle age now yeah. um still got some billions of years to move on and it'll eventually uh die yeah uh, in a uh, you know sort of fairly well understood ways yeah um and but you know it's it's sort of life over the history of the planet is important to understand global warming and and the mm-hmm. whole dynamics of climate and the ancient climates and so on and understanding all of that yeah and you know so there's been great progress in that area too it's vital to factor it in in so many other um areas of science as well and you think of zoology or paleontology you know the life of animals so the sun was a different heat back then um you have to factor that in the moon was closer all these things you forget about all of those are factors and of course now there's a big fleet of about seven or eight spacecraft around the sun so we're actually seeing the sun from all around all yeah. the time now which is the first time in history that that's been possible so we can see what's happening on the side that's facing away from the earth uh, via the satellites okay all right let's go on to general astronomy news and we've talked about mars uh, it is really bright goodness me it's a gorgeous thing still yeah in the sky well i mean last uh, a couple of days ago, I was looking at it rising, yeah. um, and it was it's stunningly bright uh, early in the evening, low in the eastern sky, um, and uh, yeah, a number of people have called me to say, you know, what what is this thing down there? Yeah. Um, the chances of something coming from Mars are a million to one, he said, uh, from the Jeff Wayne um, <laughs> <laughs> War of the Worlds thing, but it does look as though it's about to attack, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, it's 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 stunningly bright. I mean, uh, Mars only gets this bright when it's actually its closest point to Earth, and, you know, this is about that time. Mm. Um, the last time it was this close would have been 2003. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and it was very bright then. And it's it's not quite, we're not yet quite at the closest point. That's uh, the end of this, uh, end of July. Yeah. So by that time, it will be overhead around sort of midnight, mm. one o'clock, um, and... Yeah, that'll be really bright then. But it's it looks amazing right now, even just rising. It's slightly interesting to talk about. Um, we, I know we had before. It doesn't matter um, that those the 2003 and now are the brightest they've been since 60,000 years That's ago. That's right. So uh, no Roman or Greek 
had ever seen Mars so angry as we're seeing it now? Um, or angry as they would think? No, well, they would have seen, have oppositions that were sort of comparable to what we've got. Okay. I mean, the, in 2003, uh, it was the closest for 60,000 years, but by a minuscule amount. I mean, that was a big selling point, and it sure, got, go. it sure got a lot of people out looking at Mars oh, okay. because you're not going to get that chance every day, are you? <laughs> so, so NASA did a great job of shaking the tree and getting visitors to go to local observatories okay. and look at Mars. Um, it's we're this opposition it's it's about um a couple of percent further away than it was in 2003 and you you or i will not tell the difference no, so it's still no. uh, it's still a great time yeah but, uh the the, the the thing is too is that the best of when mars is its closest to earth it's southern hemisphere so all the i feel sorry for the bulk of the population of the planet who live north of the equator oh. who are looking at mars at a very low angle through a lot of atmosphere that blurs their view for down here, I mean, New Zealand is probably one of the best places on Earth to get to see it. Awesome. Because when it's at its closest, it's very high in our sky oh. and the atmosphere is a lot steadier up there. Okay, we have this neat little thing up on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage, a link to go to. You can see this asteroid Ryugu. This is what the Japanese are closing in on. It looks... This is an animation. If you've got 3D glasses, the red-green ones... Yes, if you, you put can, them, you'll see more detail. You can still, if you don't have them, you'll, it still looks pretty amazing. The damn thing's uh, spinning round. It's an amazing uh, view of the uh, of the object rotating. It's a small asteroid. It's around about a kilometre across, so it's one of the sort of smaller ones that they've visited. Uh, very weak gravity, so getting into orbit around it was uh, technically very challenging, and you know, the, Japan have done a great job of getting their craft there and into orbit. Over the next few months, it's going to be... Re well, they're going to first of all be imaging it and getting fine, lovely, sharp images, mm. and they've now got a 360 view of it, uh, which is great. I mean, a few things that strike me is it's just rotating about one axis. Is that uh, the mean, only thing just, that strikes you about well, it? Because no, to me, no, no. it looks like a freaking UFO <laughs> from the program UFO. <laughs> it's, it's just amazing. Well, you, you make a good point. Sir. Take a look at it, folks. It, it, it's it, a, don't tell Jonathan Eisen. It's just amazing. It's, well, yeah, no, you wouldn't have predicted this, and that's the great thing about all these asteroids and things they go to. I mean, like the going to the comet uh, 69P, 67P, yeah. that uh, rubber look, the rubber ducky one. I mean, some of those things were not exactly expected or predicted but this thing is a weird shape that's for sure and i'm sure the uh, planetary people will be able to tell us in due course the theories of how it ended up in that particular shape but it's also rotating about one axis it could have been tumbling it could have been knocked by something in the past it looks like there's sort of some sort of indentation at both ends of the object mm. um so who knows maybe it was I don't know. I can't. There's no retra retractable door bay at the bottom <laughs> or something. It's a freaking flying saucer. Yes. They'll get much better images too. And, of course, they've got three landers on this spacecraft, so they're going to drop down onto the surface briefly, grab a bit of the surface, leave the surface straight mm. away, and then they'll be blasting away from the asteroid back to Earth. Mm. Uh, and I think by the late next year, the spacecraft will have caught up with the Earth. They'll then release their little pod of material they've grabbed from the asteroid and dropping it off on Earth and it'll come ripping through the atmosphere. Uh, well, as far as I can tell, they're going to try to bring it down in the middle of Australia. Oh. You don't want it in the middle of the Pacific. Uh, you'd, you wouldn't want that. Well, why um, not? If it floats. 
Yeah, and I, I guess the middle of Australia is an, an fairly uninhabited but fairly accessible place. Oh, okay. And you don't want to drop it in the middle of a jungle somewhere. No. Uh, and so, the sea has currents, I understand. Yes. <laughs> That's it right. can be a bit of a problem. Find it washed up on a beach 10 years later. Anyway, so they're going to get the samples back, and from that, you know, scientists will be able to tell a great deal. This is a very primitive asteroid, the sort of thing that it w- they do say was a building block of the solar system and it doesn't look like it's uh, um, something that's been smashed up and a result of some thick collision that causes it to be heated. This will be sort of material that the solar system close to pristine. When the sun is just, just about to turn on. Yes, exactly. So this is material that a lot of the atoms and, well, the stuff in this, you know, certainly predate the, a lot of the material and minerals and stuff predate the formation of the solar system. Far out. A nice idea, if you can, is just get the music from the flying saucer from UFO, the sound effect, or, oh, damn it, the theme as well, and play the Ryugu swirling around, orbiting, uh, put that music over the top. Frightening. Yeah, Brian May's done a great stuff uh, with it. He's got a web page and he's done a bit on the um, the animation of this as well because that was his, he, his PhD. He was in Cream? Queen. Queen, sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, so he did, ended up also doing a, a PhD in astrophysics uh, to do with asteroids. So hence he's got a professional interest in, right. in this thing as well. But he's, he's not also Mark, a musician. It's, it's no, not no, just a no. hobby. Oh no, no, not at all. Guitar and a telescope, but no, he's, he's a serious Remarkable. astronomer. Okay. He is. Uh, we are the champions. Uh, okay, and good on the Japanese for getting this uh, up close. Yeah, and uh, Osiris Rex, NASA one, it's approaching its asteroid as well at the same time. So we've got a sort of a right. two missions uh, with similar objectives happening right now. If people are listening to this and watching it at the same time, can you tell us? Can you how how big this thing is? Give well, us it's, a... it's in the order of a kilometre across. Oh, okay. So, so I mean, imagine sort of something the size of Mount Eden in Auckland or the little hill near you. Something, a a chunk of stuff about a a kilometre across. Now, the gravity of a piece of stuff a kilometre across is very low, so to actually get a spacecraft to get into orbit around something with such weak gravity is a technical feat Mm. in itself. So uh, they've done very well to have achieved that. Are they going to get closer? Is that it? I think they're bringing in it in closer. I haven't, uh, I don't have just the the detail of the plan, but they are going to be mapping the surface in great detail. So then they can decide what part of the object they want to drop down onto and uh, and grab the sample from. Mind you, the animation shows it rotating much faster than it really is rotating. It's not yeah, spinning that fast. Yeah, yeah, we yeah, we haven't got all day to wait, have we? <laughs> Okay, some other lovelies, some eye candy uh, in the night sky, the or close to it, the crescent moon, very close to Venus. Yeah, this this Monday. Um, so if it's clear in the early evening on Monday, get out, look west. You can't miss Venus, bright as. It's the brightest object in the sky after the sun and the moon. And uh, as it would happen, the moon, the thin crescent moon, the new moon will be just right next to Venus. The day before, it'll just be, the moon will be close to Mercury. Mercury's a little lower in the sky, so if you look down below Venus, you'll, then you'll see Mercury further down. In between the Mercury and Venus is a star. So don't, uh, it's not Mercury, it's a star. It's called Regulus, the brightest star in the constellation Leo. So basically you'll have the, the moon over sort of Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, the moon, the crescent moon will be sliding past Mercury and Venus and it'll look stunning. And so keen, if you're keen on astrophotography, it's a, it makes a great sight. Not many people um, 
see Mercury and know it's Mercury. No, no, because you're right, because it never it, because it's orbiting so close to the sun, it never gets far away from the sun, so it's always setting or rising more or less in the twilight. So it's only a few times a year that you really get to get a good look at Mercury, and through a telescope it's pretty hopeless because you're always looking through so much atmosphere because yeah, yeah. at night time it's low down. So And you're close to the sun. Yeah, well, you can, you, know, you can find it in daylight if you know what you're doing, um, and so you could watch it when it's high overhead, but then you've got the bright lit sky and you right. don't see the details. So Mercury's a, yeah, nobody looks at Mercury, the telescope that I've seen. Right. Okay, um, now this Botswana uh, meteorite, it landed in Botswana. Uh, they found some. They did, and uh, this is only the second time ever that an asteroid has been discovered prior to impacting Earth, uh, or a meteorite, mm. if you like, but it's a, it's a small asteroidal body, hit the Earth produced a big fireball and looked like it had scattered debris down in Botswana. So they got onto it really quickly and after and they have now found a fragment of the impacting body. How did they know it is? Uh, just because of the freshness, I guess, and okay. its you know, position. I mean, uh, the, it, a lot of it was scattered over a game park, so, you know, they've got a lot of, sort of governmental control, I guess, yep. of, of that area. Um, they're still looking for more bits, but uh, the only other time that happened was one up in um, in North Africa, uh, where uh, an asteroid was first discovered, realised it was a fairly small thing, and then done. We realise now it's going to hit the Earth any time now, and then they found some bits of that one as well. So those are very valuable things for science to mm. have those, uh, because you know the orbit, you know all sorts of things about it um, before it hit. If you just get a rock on the sitting in the middle of the desert that's been there for like 20 years, you can't learn as much science from it as if it's dead fresh. Yeah. And fascinating that we know for sure that the same thing happened in ancient Egypt and they found bits, because they made iron things um, out of meteorite. We can tell that some of the um, the grave goods, yes. the precious grave goods made of iron some daggers, and nickel. I think, that yeah, were yeah. Made, and these were very precious because, in fact, some of the metals that uh, you get out of that have a strange pattern in them that only meteorites have. Yeah. Now, the Egyptians wouldn't have known about what that was, but they would have recognised that this doesn't look like the normal stuff. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, and they, these... Yeah, the, 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 those sort of metals come from the core of a of a, a, um, a small asteroid, where you had sort of a, like a metallic core. It got then smashed. That's how you get these bits um, coming off, um, and uh, that's where you get the, the. So when you see a nickel iron meteorite in a museum, that is a piece of the smashed core of a small planetary body. You don't get nickel iron on the surface of things. That's something that only forms in the core. Like the Earth has got a nickel iron core. And the only way you can get um, those sort of those sort of metals uh, occurring is the pla the object that it formed within had to have been hot, and so the heavy bits all sank to the centre because it was molten. So it has to be a sort of a planetoid size object, not just something you know the size right. of um, a bread box, Kyushu or something. Okay, and apparently most of Earth's meteorites um, from six ancient planets. How do we know that? Ah, well, this comes from the orbits. So this is, uh, so these are, somebody's been analysing, this team's been analysing the orbits. Uh, we, we've, we've got the orbits now of approaching a million asteroids and they can see there's what's called the inner asteroid belt and the outer, uh, the main asteroid belt. They've been looking at the asteroids that occupy about 
couple of hundred thousand of them that occupy the inner part of the belt, and they found they can sort of look at the orbits and show that they really all came from just five original objects that were smashed up because they all had a common origin. If you wind time back in computer simulations, you find that uh, you, you just get that. Um, and the other 15% of them, of, of that 200,000, uh, the, they're maybes. They, they can't be sure about those, okay. but they, they can be pretty darn sure that the 85% of them can be traced back to these five original collisions. Um, so... So this idea that, well, see, it it sort of speaks to this idea that, and you see it in a lot of the, even the current books, that the asteroid belt is stuff left over from the formation of the solar system, Mm. um, like it sort of, and it just wasn't, didn't form a planet for some reason, okay? Uh, But in fact, what it looks like, and what these these authors are saying, is that the, in fact, there were planetoid bodies that had formed there and what was the asteroid belt is really the result of those being smashed up through collisions. Ah. And so they're, they're, and that's why we see these nickel iron. The only way you can see, uh, say, a nickel iron meteorite on Earth is that one of the, a body of that sort of magnitude has been smashed to smithereens and we're seeing a bit of its core. Right. Um, so, you know, something the size of uh, Vesta or Ceres, these sort of big, sort of what we'd call dwarf planets possibly. Mm-hmm. So they were there. There were just probably a bunch of them and they eventually all smashed into each other and, uh, you know, what we're seeing is the shattered remains of those primitive bodies. So we know it's wreckage, not a failed planet. Yeah, it's yeah. not a failed planet. It's uh, it's not stuff that simply didn't accumulate, otherwise you wouldn't have the nickel iron components right, right. as well. Fabulous. Okay, now this neutron star merger was the biggest news that even made mainstream news uh, a little while ago. Um, now we've got some light from it, apparently. Is, is it peeking from behind the well, sun? What yes, are, well, just it? soon after this event, uh, it got too close to the sun. I mean, in terms of the sky, obviously it's you know not actually physically close to the sun, but, you know, you can't point your telescope within a certain distance of the sun, so you as the Earth goes around its orbit, then objects we're interested are on the other side of the sun. You can't look at them because there's a sun in the way. Mm. And so and uh, so they they only got a really short window to study this the remnants of this uh, merger of uh, two neutron stars. Um, and it, it was a tremendous advance for science because it was seen through gravity, it was seen through um, neutrinos, it was seen through optical light, infrared all sorts of, just about every wavelength you can imagine, uh, including, I think, radio. Uh, So it was one of the most important events in modern astronomy. And so, but unfortunately, it was also close to getting too close to the sun, and so they had to stop looking. So um, these are the first observations that have been made of it since it came out. Um, One of the controversies was, was when you get two neutron stars, which are very dense, uh, they're they're in the order of... um, uh, 20 kilometres across, mass of the sun, but only 20 kilometres. Can you imagine that? Uh, something the size of a sort of a city, but spinning on its axis, maybe um, you know, hundreds of times per second. Mm. Uh, so these two objects were orbiting each other and merged into a, a, a new object. The question is, would they actually produce a black hole or would they produce a neutron star? The observations show now that it, it left behind a neutron star, which is still pumping out light. If it had gone to a black hole, we wouldn't be seeing anything. So we're definitely seeing stuff coming out. The merger produced a heavier neutron star. Okay. Um, and it's uh, given a huge amount of insight into the physics, which is still a, a bit of a mystery. The inside of neutron stars is a totally, I mean, it's way beyond anything you can do with the Large Hadron Collider. It's a whole realm of physics that 
neutron stars provide almost the only way of probing mm. and getting any chance of understanding at the present time. So it's uh, so basically, yeah. So what they're um, and, and the the speculation was was that from this merger would the radiation be going out in every which way from this object or would it be coming out through a jet? Well, what these folks say is their observations show that basically what's it's the new object, the, the merged neutron star, is producing a very strong high-energy jet of material coming out through its rotational axis and that material is then colliding with other stuff around it and that's what's producing the growth ah, and radiation. That's the so, only way we can so, see it. So it's really solved that mystery there. It's sort of wiped off these ideas that it was somehow just... Uh, it didn't have a jet and it was just mm. producing radiation in every which way. It's definitely, apparently, according to these uh, authors published in Nature Astronomy, uh, have got... Uh, it's, it's produced a jet. So okay. um, totally new... New world here. Uh, Gaia, the mapping of the Milky Way and beyond, uh, it's giving us news week in, week out in astronomy and now some information that shows a bit of the history of the Milky Way. Some major collision. We've run into something and it's changed the shape of our, our galaxy. Yeah. Well, Can so we go- sue? <laughs> be good. I mean, you make a packet. The the Gaia satellite launched by the European Space Agency has been mapping and measuring the positions and motions of nearly two billion stars, mm. and uh, in the Milky Way and in the na- the na- few neighbouring galaxies. And it's, uh, it's 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 sort of one of the. It'll become one of the really great surveys ever um, and it can measure the distances to stars so for the first time astronomers have got a database of a lot of stars several you know uh, well over a billion showing their motions and from the analysis of that the people who analyze these sort of things uh, not my field um, they have shown that in fact uh, the Milky Way took a early in its past must have been had a, a dwarf galaxy collide with it now that's not that dramatic because, I mean, we can see dwarf galaxies still colliding, but they can see to see that this was a pretty big sort of thing. They've actually dubbed it the Sausage Galaxy. I don't oh. know why. Probably because it had a sort of a, a basically a sausage shape um, by the time it hit, collided with the Milky Way. Mm. And, of course, its stars then got absorbed into the Milky Way and the Gaia satellite can track where those stars are now because it can see a whole bunch of stars moving in a way that isn't consistent with the rest of the galaxy. So these oh. stars still retain a history of that merger billions of years ago. Oh. So that's uh, it's one of the many, many things that are coming out of the Gaia um, satellite. And where's the rest of the sausage? Well, they just... <laughs> the, uh, the, yeah, so the... These stars sort of—they also have a slightly different chemistry because they didn't form in our galaxy. They've come—they formed in a separate one. So We've eaten the sausage. <laughs> yeah, that's—it hasn't been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, it's uh, you, you make a good point. Oh. So yeah, so it's—it's <laughs> it's been absorbed into the Milky Way's right. body, if you like. Right. It's being digested, uh, but you can still track the the markers of that galaxy by the stars that it brought in, and they have their own motions in our galaxy, and that's what Gaia can now separate those from those of uh, other the motions of other stars in the galaxy. It's amazing right. what they can do. Yeah, Grant Christie, thank you so much. Astronomy yeah. brought to you by the Mad Butcher. Go <laughs> get some soldiers. Man, the UFO theme was great, wasn't it? Shouldn't play it without saluting the great man Barry Gray, Thunderbirds, and all of that. What a composer! Do go and have a look at Ryugu. It's a weird looking thing.
A spinning squash. Oh, yeah. Close to where you were, though, anyway. Okay, new spot and weather coming up next.